Hello and welcome to Shakespeare on Screen, a fun little podcast where I meet up with friends to just chat about adaptations of Shakespeare on, on the screens. Um, we've we talk about about recorded stage productions, we talk about film adaptations, and we talk about this case TV adaptations. This week, I have returning with me my good friend Alex from the online Shakespeare repertory. Hi, Alex. How's it going? Hey, thanks for having me back. Hopefully this time my audio is better. Uh, I do apologize for the terrible quality last time. Did not realize that. I thought you came out pretty good. Um, so uh, we're, we're both here to talk about um, 2012's uh, series The Hollow Crown and their first their first movie they did in their four part series, Richard the Second. It's um, 2012. Um, um, full disclosure, I did this wonderful podcast with um, my, my my friends, the Bix Pod, and on there we talked about um, the Hollow Crown season one. And uh, but we're gonna get really deep into Richard the Second here. And something I just thought of while I was on the podcast, I didn't realize, but then I was like, oh wow, was 2012 was a really great year for British culture. It was the their diamond jubilee, the, the the Queen's Elizabeth II's diamond jubilee. They hosted the Olympics and they had a James Bond movie and an amazing, possibly definitive take on the histories with the Hollow Crown. Was that Spyfall that or Skyfall? Yeah, it was Skyfall. Okay, because that was also that also had. I was just looking up uh, Ben Wishaw, who plays Richard. He was in that. As was Rory Kinnear. Rory Kinnear. Oh. They were both in it together, and I just saw the movie. I was like, oh wow, they're together. Oh, in, like, the, he the was. Same season. And yeah. they and they get along in this movie, <laughs> in the movie, which they don't in this one. Yeah. So yeah, 2012, good year for for those two as well. Yeah, it was. So, yeah. Hmm. Um. Where do you want to jump into it? Well, kind of um a little bit, and as we 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 may begin to the themes, we can get into a little bit also the just the history. Um, normally I ask what's your relationship with uh with Shakespeare, but since you're a returning guest, how about this question instead? What's your relationship with this play? Ah, that's a fair question. Uh, so in it was actually in 2012. Uh, complete coincidence. I was working part time and I had a lot of free time in my hand, and this was really just a year or two into my absolute obsession with Shakespeare, which hasn't subsided too much. Uh, and by that point, I had read, let's say, roughly just over 20 of the plays, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, this is criminal. I want to reread the rest of the plays. Uh, and so my goal was in 2012 to read, not only read them, but write a a commentary, an essay inspired by the likes of Maggie, uh, Emma Smith's um, Approaching Shakespeare or Marjorie Garner's Garber. Wow, I'm blanking on names today. Uh, Shakespeare, all after all, um, Harold Bloom's Invention of the Human. I was going to write those type of essays. Ooh. And I actually wrote one on Richard yes. II, which I have because it was part of that slew of the ones I hadn't read. So I read Richard II for the first time in 2012, shortly before seeing Hollow Crown. Uh, and then I wrote, it was an essay on, this was also uh, the Arab Spring, and 
Oh, yeah. Egyptian coup slash not coup. What really interests me was at the time President Obama, whenever was talking about the change in power that happened in Egypt in, I'm going to say, late 2011, early 2012, mm-hmm. uh, he very much never used the word coup, even though he was explaining what was happening as a coup. And mm-hmm. I was like, hey, that's exactly <laughs> what Richard II did. <laughs> yes. Well, that was my early relationship with that play. Mm, that's perfect. That's wonderful. Um, my relationship was, um, just like a lot of things, just a, a rekindling of Shakespeare love was um, was uh, seeing uh, the the hollow crown for the first time and seeing Richard the second and instantly loving this, this film and more as I read the play, including for the Shakespeare group, we're both members of, I just love this play more and more and every time. And I've seen other productions that are also fantastic. And maybe we should get into that. I think at the end, but we can get into in the end, why is this not as popular a, a play for Shakespeare because I don't think it's it's some of his plays you can understand where it's like ooh problem play or ooh it eh, just isn't that great of a play but this one I think this is a one of his best it's a masterpiece it's an utter masterpiece and I agree with that it's it's definitely my favorite history and and I love most of it I love Henry the Fourth Part One and Henry VI Part Two and Three is pretty good, uh, but this is is my favorite, and it's it's so different. It's it is one of the more unique plays uh, mm-hmm. of all of his plays, just for several reasons, which I'm sure we'll touch on. But yeah. because of that, and just the amazing character that is Richard in this. Um, yeah. So I think actually, okay. Well, I, put on a bit of the the Jamie the trivia guy that I always am uh one of the things that Shakespeare scholars posit is this is one of the things that's to get into and to segue hopefully gracefully into talking about Richard and then about Ben Winshaw is that this is was this year that that Shakespeare William Shakespeare the author and playwright wrote Richard the second. He was basically at his, I think his peak for mastery of language, maybe not mastery of, of, of the heart or comedy, but it, it definitely mastery of language in that he would write Romeo and Juliet, Richard the second and a midsummer night's dream. Three of his, his three most beautiful in terms of language plays. Yeah, he was on a lyrical kick, and it's yeah. a lyrical uh, triad, and it's amazing. That's I don't. It's not the only year that he did one tragedy, one history, and one uh, comedy within the same mm-hmm. year, but there's only a few of those years. '99, uh, mm-hmm. I believe, was the other, and I'm probably missing one. But this was just three. And three really. That, that's a great point, place, though. Like... But they're also um, there's such overlap, and I can't remember. I don't, and you can't really tell when it comes to dates and and oh, yeah. when you, you. I don't know. I know that Midsummer was, if you go by all accounts, written before Romeo and Juliet, and I think Richard is supposed to be after Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And I like to think of it that way because obviously there are parallels between Midsummer and Romeo and Juliet, and that's a whole other topic. But mm-hmm. just look at the are there parallels between 
Romeo and Juliet and Richard II. And yeah, yeah, they're they're kind of are in, in just obscure kind of language ways, but uh, um, it's well, just really funny to think about. Well, it holds the record, um, or or it's very well known to be one of only two, I think, plays by the Bard that was entirely in verse. Entirely in verse. Isn't somewhat just the. I don't know about the gardener. He might not. Be. Uh, no, no. Even the gardener. Even the gardener oh, is speaking is. In, okay. in verse. Yeah, it's just like everyone is speaking in verse, and that's actually the gardener would be kind of the justified moment where you'd have the 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 prose. Yeah, and in. I just read it. I should know this, but you know, <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. No, that makes sense. And no, I think that again, he was just in a very poetic mood in '95. <laughs> if we're taking those three plays as written, then yeah. Um, also, you can semi-justify it, except for with the gardener, it's it's pretty much nothing but elites in this play. So, and the elites tend to always, in Shakespeare's tradition, speak in verse, whereas well, like true. the lower class speak in prose. And I'm wondering, is this the only history play that doesn't feature some form of the commons? Because it really doesn't. It is. It is just the elites here. Yeah. There's no. Nothing even remotely like East Cheap or no. well, Jack Cade's Rebellion or any of the other common scenes in the other history plays. Yeah. Maybe that that might get into our, our final topic at the end. Yeah. Uh, but Okay, Let's so jump into the Hollow Crown itself. What are yes. your what are your initial takes on it? Well, the Hollow Crown as a whole, I mean I've said this on another podcast, but I mean, honestly, Alex, I'd love to to, to come back just to talk about each one of these, every one of the Hollow Crown, just because I love this series so much. So I love the aesthetic. I love the realism. I love the casting. Everything is pretty much pitch perfect for for this. And they even go for some – and they make the right choices for for making this into – a film of what trims they make and what kind of changing some, there is some Shakespearean dialogue that is tweaked yeah. beyond the one major, major plot point we'll get into later on. But I, and I mean, maybe we could talk about this right now, just like this is a fun starting off point, but there's obviously this elephant in the room that that's obviously the biggest aesthetic influence on the hollow crown and it's game of thrones you think so i mean i kind of see it i yeah maybe i never actually made that that connection i mean it's you know roughly same time period of yeah um i don't know if there's anything directly to connect it beyond that well just but like that, that that atmosphere and well what was popular then yeah, there. It, it was like was, Game of Thrones was really introducing yeah, yeah. what was like political intrigue. So, ooh, people really like medieval political intrigue. So that might be one of the reasons why the the BBC chose to do the histories for their Shakespeare celebration in the middle of everyone's paying attention to us. That's true. I never actually looked into why they did the Hollow Crown. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> started I mean, with the well, that was uh, the question the other podcast asked, and I have no answer, really. It was just like, it's so interesting that, like, in the middle of this zenith of, of everyone is paying attention to Great Britain, we like, what do we choose? Like, of course we're going to choose Shakespeare. They're like, yes. Like, 
no question, but like what plays do we choose to celebrate? Yeah, they could have put together just the high tragedies and done a Hamlet, Macbeth, um, Lear, I guess Othello. But, um, but I mean, I do understand like yeah. from, a, from a practical standpoint of just like, well, we want to celebrate our history, but so, like the hollow crown begins with Richard II of, of, of a quotation from the very famous, which we get the title from, the hollow crown speech of just let's sit on the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. That's true. If you're trying to celebrate your your queen's diamond jubilee, I don't know if you know this. <laughs> your your dynasty is founded upon usurpation and terrible people being terrible <laughs> to each other. Happy yeah. birthday! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it is an interesting choice. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think that I mean, again, this is pure speculation. I have no backstory in the history of the Hollow Crown series. But if I had to guess, given the casting and just the popularity of the play, I think Richard II was not their flagship. It was kind of a lead up to you know, Henry IV Part One, which exploded with you know, Jeremy Irons and Hiddleston. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Henry V, which is probably the most popular out of that lot. Oh, yeah. Well, yes. So Richard II just happens to be the first. And in my opinion, it's the best out of the four of them, both in plays, but also productions, which I'll talk about. Yeah. Um, I actually just rewatched Henry the uh, Fourth Part One, Hologram, Ooh. just before this. Okay. Uh, so I can, and, and there's some interesting points of comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, all, parts one and two are directed by the same director, so it's basically three directors. There's three <laughs> unique directors for each one, so it, they are getting a bit of a different directing choice and directing style in each one. And you can see it if you watch, which I pretty much did, back-to-back Richard II and Henry IV. It is such a stark contrast, and... I looked at both those directors. They're not known directors. They've done a few projects mm-hmm. before and yeah. since. But I don't know, to me, and I love the play Henry IV and the, the Hollow Crown, while somewhat miscast, is still a very good uh, episode, sort of a very good film, mini film. But it's flat. Like it's There's mm. nothing about the direction that really took it and did anything interesting with it. It just took the source material, which is very good, and presented it very well. You look at Richard II, and I don't know, either because it's not as well known and there weren't as many expectations, or just because of the the poetic nature of the play, they really went for it. You know, the cinematography in that thing. Oh, yeah. Goals. Well, oh, yeah. So, actually, that's perfect. So, let's talk about that. I mean, there's so much I can get into. And one of the reasons why I genuinely, this is one of my favorite Shakespeare on-screen thing produced ever is just Richard II and it's it's what made me fall in love with this play but just um just the opening shot is perfect just opening with the with the cross and coming down and then mirroring at the end yeah. going from down up to the image of, of of Christ and you open up and just the costuming everyone has this slight almost star warsy color coding to them hmm. of a very subtle and like i'm only realizing this now but but lancaster but bolingbroke future leader of the founder of the lancastrian inner dynasty is wearing red in almost everything as is john of gaunt 
Yeah. And the Yorkists are wearing blue. And uh, and then in the middle is Richard in gold and white in so much of this. And so that's a wonderful, subtle, subtle art direction that I love. And so let's talk about performance now. Uh, so, so Ben Winshaw as Richard. Winshaw or Wishaw? Let, uh, l- let me look it up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm looking at, ooh, I just had him here. Sorry. Uh, yeah, there's no N. At least according to IMDb. Oh, the ultimate Wishaw. source for things. Wishaw. Yeah, Wishaw. Yeah, no. He, he, um, have you had you seen him in anything before? Uh, um, yeah, yeah, I've seen him. Uh, Skyfall. Um, like, but, yeah, I, I saw him in this uh, movie. Uh, I'm not there. Uh, it's oh, uh, he was. Yes, I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, it wasn't a big role, but like he was like yeah. kind of like the, the sort of narrator in the middle of this very avant-garde movie. Yeah. Yeah, and that was his thing that I, I completely forgot. Like, I had seen him, what I had known him before, before I saw Holocron, where his role as Ariel in Julie Tamor's Tempest ah, was perfect choice. In, interesting. Um, and then uh, John Keats in everyone's favorite Bright Star, which... Oh. So he, he didn't really have major roles. His biggest, no, 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 no. Yeah. You know, Q was his most popular role i guess yeah um, and probably still is that's what probably still is but he is fantastic i thought he was good in both bright star and and tamor's tempest which are both mediocre movies mm-hmm. uh he was still good in both of them but mm-hmm. when i saw when i saw him as richard it was it was the first time i i think yeah it was the first production i had seen so i read the play and this was the first time I actually saw it. And I think reading it, you don't get a scope of how much Richard has to carry this play. Mm. Uh, you think of of characters like, obviously, Hamlet um, mm. or, or Brutus and, and Caesar um, mm. or you know, Brutus and Cassius. And Richard is one of those characters that makes or breaks his play. You need a good Richard or the whole thing falls apart. Hmm. yeah uh, well yes it is his play yeah well i mean it's his play uh, at yeah. the same time henry the fourth part one you know you you can live without a great henry the fourth he's actually a fairly minor how is <laughs> certainly yeah. important but you know hiddleston was not a good hal for henry the fourth part one but the, the episode doesn't Ooh. fall apart so i think there is a distinction between just being the title character but and having to carry uh, your your entire play and just to quickly compare the, the Hall of Crown to the the BBC uh, oh, yes. Jacoby he doesn't he doesn't do it <laughs> he, he, Jacoby does not carry that, words. that version yes. uh, as much as I like him as an actor he is not right for that part well he does a different a much more petulant and immature richard like that's i think his take is he's much more of this kind of like spoiled petulant almost near nero like figure are we talking wisha um for i'm, I'm talking jacoby oh, okay that, that's yeah. kind of like his take well yeah. and getting into it and this is one of the things and we'll get to actually with both i think that i'll slightly disagree with you 
it is ultimately on Richard's very steady shoulders. A, a actor play Richard of this play sinks or, or, or flies on, on your Richard, but you need to also have a, a definitive take on Bolingbroke and they need to be foils to one another. So yes, you need but... a great Bolingbroke with a great Richard. That's my, my own take on this play because, and it's just so fascinating and, and I love what they, what they, what this one goes for is, and there's so many ways you can interpret this play and these characters and what do they represent? What do they mean? And Richard is very much, especially in this wonderful production, the old way. He is 100% this idea of the anointed king. Yeah. And he takes it to this level, which Wishaw perfectly portrays, like of just the anointed king as a holy figure. And a holy figure is just perfect, actual, correct use of this word, aloof, of just like, just only half there. And just so remote and just so just disconnected from the world and and that's kind of like fine for the sort of aesthetic and like the image of the king but when it's actual in practice ruling that's when you get into troubles as this play wonderfully unfolds oh yeah he was a terrible king uh, there's no and and we can get into the question of does a shakespeare and b the director of this production, whose name I'm blanking on, although I have it right um, here. Uh, R- Rupert Gold. Gold. Yeah. So does Shakespeare or Gold want us to sympathize with Richard or loathe him? I think that's an interesting question for this play. Historically, he was terrible. Oh, well, well okay. Yes. All right. So this is a wonderful sidetrack. I, I, whenever we talk about the histories, I always, on this podcast, I always mention just like Shakespeare is a dramatist. Shakespeare just... There's a reason why they call it Shakespearean history, is he just he just plays fast and loose with the with history. It's like no, Richard II was was two when the Duke of Somerset died. He wasn't some kid soldier. Uh, but and yeah, the biggest thing that you can really point to for this play in particular is he is unbelievably nice to Richard II, the real Richard II. Completely had it coming. He completely yes. had it coming, and he was utterly tyrannical. And he and Shakespeare just seems to deflect all of that onto Green and and Bushy, who I said before they're no commoners in this play. Well, they are actually the commoners. Oh, or they yeah. don't. Act well, well, like yeah, it. well, yeah, and that, that's that's part they, of Gunn's fury. They get, like you know, flatterers. Yeah, jump flatterers. Even in the um, so the the point of of the play where you know we're meant to hate Richard the most is the John of Gaunt scene, Act mm-hmm. Two, Scene One, when Richard comes in and um, essentially says, "I'm stealing, you're dying, I'm stealing your lands," and he gets nothing. Uh, and we're, I think, we're supposed to kind of like most of the people in that room say, "Oh, this is terrible. You can't do this. This will bring down you, bring out your downfall." But even that is preceded um, when York. York or Northumberland? Shoot. I think, yeah, York is talking to, to Gaunt, um, saying, you know, it's not the king's fault. He has these terrible bushy and green and other flattery. Yeah. yeah. It was commoner's fault. So, yeah. He well, was... well, and 
and that's the thing that like that, that that's part of it but but getting into just the the plot of the play as well is like bushy and 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 baggett and green are not the ones that 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 tell him to just stop this duel in the middle of nowhere and just say like eh, no no this isn't happening no no duel no fight to the death no and i'm just gonna bash you and you cousin that i secretly know is innocent for 10 years you mowbray who is guilty i'm bashing you for life and just like like there's no counsel that's just him and for me at least the way i interpret this and i think this is what gould interprets as well is that the fatal flaw of this richard is his impetuousness is just how he is just quick to to make these rash decisions without any thought at all to them yeah you see at the in the, in the very opening scene um he he begins the play by urging henry and and mowbray to make peace to put aside their differences and then they won't and he just there's that amazing line i was not born to sue but to command <laughs> that's like yeah i i tried but i'm not begging you people fine <laughs> right to the death and, and then he reverses that last second just yeah as he can okay and so let, let, let's talk a little bit again about both direction and and well no just direction of just that is a master stroke of of having that the that first scene the first scene of the play be kind of this opening and then we have the titles and we have a montage of training yes i was gonna say it is first of all what he cut out what uh what gould cut out and i'm sometimes very skeptical about you know alterations to the text but he took the parts of the play that have no resonance to the, you know, to the layman. Everything yeah. about the death of Gloucester. Oh, shoot. Sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. Everything about the death of Gloucester is pretty much removed from this play, including... Zero sorry, reference. Yeah, zero so reference to Gloucester. In the original text, you have the opening scene, as it is in, in Hollow Crown, followed by scene two, which is Duchess of Gloucester and uh, Gaunt talking about the death of Gloucester and then back to the duel between Henry and Mowbray. And yeah, Gould just took out that middle scene, which has no place in the play and yeah. put in a training montage and just beautiful music and, and the visuals. And it's, it essentially makes that opening scene a cold open, which is mm-hmm. fantastic. Well, and then it, it also doubles because it really builds up uh, and okay. I, I, I've never actually talked about this before, but so casting of this is is a wonderful who's who of british talent and for me as a big fan of rome it's like ooh, two big stars from rome are in this and getting james purefoy who played mark antony in rome and he's a big british actor to play thomas mowbray anyone unfamiliar with the play is thinking oh okay so this is going to be a big character yeah like rory kinnear is a big actor yep like James Purefoy is a big actor. So this is going to be like a big moment. And this, and couple that with the montage one where we get the idea, Oh, Richard's kind of on the bi to pansexual orientation wise, which is a nice touch. And that kind of explains the flamboyant tone that, that Wishaw goes for, for Richard. Yeah. That was one of those parts of history, you know, was 
and yeah that was that, that's like hinted in history yeah although it's also like very well documented that he loved his queen <laughs> his 10 year old queen well not the 10 year old yeah but <laughs> the first one <laughs> yeah he had two queens and so yeah the we, we had a discussion uh full disclosure we had a discussion about this uh um off screen where a slight weakness of this other near perfect for tetralogy by Shakespeare is that there aren't that many practically no real great female roles no there aren't and, and and the ones that are there are pretty small yeah. uh Kate Percy and Henry the fourth part one very good character gets one and a half scenes yeah does very little in either of them well, <laughs> so yeah the queen in this play gets a real <laughs> one really great scene it, it, her farewell to richard and yeah. kind of other than that it, it's just yeah she's in three scenes in total and all three are just complaining about why is richard <laughs> going to ireland what richard's being arrested what richard's being put in the tower it's yeah. it's just it's the ultimate failing of the bechdel test but it's also <laughs> Has no personality, and and you compare her to any of the female care, almost all female characters in the uh, the York tetralogy, um, yeah. tetralogy, and yes, it's it's part history, it's part source, but I also think that Shakespeare's focus was was elsewhere, and you see this in a few plays, mm-hmm. especially in in the three 1990 play, 1999 plays, um, which are Henry V much ado about nothing and uh, julius caesar or the the bromance you know triad mm-hmm. it's not a good time for women oh uh, well in these ones but he, well. but, he, but he made beatrice during that so. yeah beatrice is the one exception but even she is the she's the outsider when it comes yeah. to gender yeah true, <laughs> That's true too. um yes. yeah but yeah so the, the queen is not the highlight of this play and no. in the sense that's fine because it is so much about the relationship between um, Richard and, and Bolinbrook. Yes, and and just the nature of of seizing power and instability and all that. That is true. It is also that. it's one of the, the philosophic plays, and he has a few of those. Julius Caesar is, is the most obvious, where sometimes the characters aren't so much characters, but mouthpieces for whatever point he is trying to make Mm -hmm. Uh, and as much as i think that richard is a fantastic character and i'll give bolenberg his due although i'll circle back to that um there are certain scenes where they are kind of just mouthpieces for divine right of kings versus love of the people makes or just the the modern king yeah the renaissance king of that the king is, is no longer this anointed figure no the king must actually care for his subjects and do things for his subjects, which Henry the fourth is kind of, and the way this cycle kind of goes, arguably is that you go from a King that's too kind of distant and cares nothing but himself and the, and is just as God wisely puts it is a landlord as in a landlord only cares about himself and, and exploitation. 
no offense to actual landlords, but just like the the concept of a landlord. Well, it's also like, that is the idea of not only does he only care about himself, but that he is essentially racking up so much debt that yeah. even though he is king of, of England, it's really owned by the nobles who he's so indebted to. Yeah. Uh, but well, yeah. And, and also the landlord comes in that that he he's using the land like the only thing that he regards as land is like this is the source of my money that's true. like and so that and, in that way yeah and you get this wonderful speech from from john gaunt all about a, the, him praising england for however many lines and, and describing how beautiful and wonderful this this country is and and it really is offset against richard who couldn't care less um <laughs> Now there's yeah. a scene in the sorry I know we're jumping all over the place <laughs> but there's that scene in in the holocron when they return from Ireland uh it's I guess it's right before Scroop comes in to tell him Bushy and Green are dead and Henry has stolen everything he comes and he he kisses the sand and I can't remember exactly what his line is in the holocron but I think that might be invented by the holocron I don't remember it being oh no 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 text uh, Wait, um, from when Richard does that? Yeah. Oh no, no, that's part of his his scene. That that is part of his scene. Is it just in like, the text? It's just like can... it is in the text of just like, but okay. the, 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 like that's like part of creative is like he 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 lands and kisses the soil and says like, and then like he he immediately lays a curse like begging the earth to to curse Bolingbroke, the earth okay. itself, which kind of ties into later point when he's basically he has nothing but he's just in the castle and he's just saying oh. oh you know, God's going to curse you. God's going to curse you. Okay. I couldn't remember if that was just an invention um, because yeah. based on my memory of having just read the play, obviously, um, yeah. Omer asks, you know, do you like being back in England? And then they kind of just move on quickly from that. Um, yeah. But so I found that I just, I did find that an odd moment of him coming back and, you know, kissing the, the sand because that does kind of go against how we're meant to see him as someone who doesn't really have an affinity for the country. He just, he is the king well, because God made him the king and that's, that's about it. Well, well, but, but think about what he says in that moment of, like I said, is that, is that I am commanding you. I am commanding you the earth, just like it's this delusion of, of, of being an anointed king of saying that like, well, I, I control the earth. I control the heavens. I am, I am an anointed king. That's fair, yeah. And so just like, come on, come on, snakes, spiders, <laughs> come on. Uh, yeah. Like, England, England, I am your king, so you, England, attack my enemy. And uh, so Richard isn't exactly good at this job. <laughs> so, no. And we so, never see him do anything kingly, I guess. Uh, well, he does things that are theoretically kingly, but they're all in the tyrannical side of kingly. Not, not, none of the, nothing in the good category at all. Of that, even theoretically, there's a case to be made where it's like, okay, oh, there's trouble in Ireland, so I should go to Ireland. You're right. That is the well, thing. Like that, that's like, yeah, no, you're supposed to do that, yes. But then just like, oh well. But then immediately in that very scene, it's just. And this is, again, getting into maybe the technical side of things, but just like he says right there, okay, tax the crap out of the people to pay for it. 
Yeah. For these Irish wars. And if that doesn't work, so he's already saying like that might not work because wars are incredibly costly. I'm going to give you blank charters on the no on the nobles. And so it's going to be you, my sycophants discretion to charge whatever you want of the nobles. That's just like, ooh, we can rob the nobles blind. <laughs> that is true. It's, um, and, yeah, the, the focus and that, that's, on... Uh, and that, again, that's what the actual Richard was like by the end. Yeah, he was, he was very much absolute ruler. And I think the, the production, the hologram captures that so well, uh, especially in the scene when he's in um, uh, Flint Castle, just on the balcony, you know, draped in gold. Oh, and it's the, the yeah. extreme close-up of his face. It's one of my favorite shots. Um, although are, it, yeah. it works against the text a little bit, but it's ha- so it's extreme close-up of his face. He is yelling at the people below, basically saying, "I am God's representative. You come against me, you turn and attack me, and all the plagues upon you." Yeah. And then immediately after, uh, Northumberland you know, takes uh, takes a knee and is like, "We don't want to attack you. We just Henry just." Wants his land back, and then it goes back to the extreme close-up, and still, it's still him in tyrant voice. Ben Wisha has his you know, yeah. Richard voice and his king tyrant voice, so still him in his tyrant voice is like, okay, he'll have whatever he wants. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, all right. <laughs> cool. Well, that's getting into the impulsiveness of him. It's the impulsiveness, and the play does it either so well or so frustratingly, depending on your take on this play and. You know, the, the for best example is the duel that just gets, it's his lead up to this epic duel. Like, yes. So the, br- I'm going to bring down all the plagues on you. Oh, not, never mind. Yeah. It's, it's these fake outs that happen throughout the entire play. And I don't know, maybe it's supposed to be a representation of Richard or just. So one of the reasons why I adore this play so much is what you're touching on right now. And this is something that became an infamous term thanks to Star Wars The Last Jedi, of subverting expectations. And this play is just this wonderful, almost like Shakespeare on full troll mode. It is. And you really of just like you, you think that, oh, and the director, Ghoul, does an even better job of just like building up. Oh, wow, this duel is going to be amazing. And, and there's another sub part I want to mention, or I, I'll mention it right now, is so the way Ghoul directs it in the first half of the play and what you're saying as I'm watching the first half of this this wonderful movie, Wishaw is doing a great job of like, he is so ethereal, but I freaking hate him. I hate him. I'm yeah. just like this flowery idiot that is just so recklessly impulsive. And compared to that, and I've praised him before, and I'm going to praise him so much here, Rory Kinnear as Bolingbroke, what they choose to do with him. Of just this utterly grounded and this utterly nice, sincere dude, that it's pretty much the first half reeks of feeling like Lancaster propaganda of just like, oh wow, he really is just this nice dude. Oh, he's such a nice dude, and he's so loyal to his king. He doesn't want to be king at all. This is a wonderful dude, and he really just wants justice because Mowbray is a jerk, probably. Yeah, and. And just that wonderful moment of, of of asking for his king's blessing, and even even accepting the, the kind of insulting love that Richard gives him. I was like, well, I really like you, and hope you win, but 
if you don't win, I can't do anything. Sorry. I won't Sorry, avenge cause. your death. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, like, I, I agree. And I don't know. It's if if we're jumping to to uh, Kinnear, I do like how grounded he is. He is, and and the perfect scene. And I know we're gonna circle back to this because I think it deserves its own conversation. Uh, Act four, scene one. Yes. The transfer of power. We'll, we'll get to that. But yes. just uh, just to touch on that for a second, just to be on on Kinnear, I didn't realize until I rewatched this that like I I had this idea since I first read the play of of that scene and it is my favorite scene. Um, I rewatched and fun. realized Bolenbrook says maybe three lines in that scene and in Gould's version two of them are whispered. <laughs> it's like that is that he plays that scene based on his facial reactions yes. to Richard being Richard and it he is sometimes his best parts of this of this movie TV episode, whatever calling it, is when he's not talking. Um, yeah. He is such a great presence in, in, yeah. And there's something so expressive in his face and his yeah. eyes that just, yes, I know what you mean. And it's just like the reactions the entire time of, yes, of Richard being Richard. And Bolingbroke being Bolingbroke being a bit more direct and just to the point. But he's not even though he. So if you uh, if you look at that scene, it's Northumberland's basically Bolingbroke's mouthpiece for that entire scene. Again, mm-hmm. he has three lines, uh, <laughs> and most of it is just him being annoyed. <laughs> you look at every time it cuts to a, a shot of him, he's <laughs> like, "What the hell is he doing now?" Like, yeah. Well. I mean, there's others where it's more like straight up like angry, annoyed. Like if you ever see the Royal Shakespeare one with David Tennant, the actor playing Bolingbroke in that one is just like so like visibly angry mm. and so like visibly like. Ugh. Whereas um, John Finch in the BBC version with uh, Derek Jacobi is a bit more on the on the middle ground, just like the of where he's just like where it's not completely accidental that he usurped the throne, but it's not also, but he didn't super want it either yeah and that's but, that's a whole and, other question yeah and so and th- we can get into that too but uh, and so like he, he's like on that on the cusp of just being like i thought you'd been willing to resign and just like come on stop it stop yeah. it <laughs> stop it john finch what a great actor um so yeah so the so the banishment scene, that's another, I just want to praise again, the production of just of Richard looking at his pet monkey that he has half the time as he's in this tent surrounded by gold. What a beautiful, this is, this was made for TV, but this would look gorgeous in cinema. I'm just like, there's some real great set design and set choices and production for this. And so it's all just like how flamboyant Richard is and how the image of the king he is. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, because uh, the BBC budget is, is famously. Oh, yes. Rich. Um, so I'm wondering if, if they just blew all of their money on, on this one. And that's why the other three look the way they do, which isn't bad, but at the same time, not nearly as, as good as this one. Um, and well, you got to get people hooked. Um, yeah. 
I mean, partially that also comes from the fact that they got to just rent out real castles. And so yeah, it's just helps. decorating a little bit of the castles. And so most of the budget can be set and put into the costuming. And also what's not cost prohibitive compared to the other ones, there are no battles. And so we were touching a bit, uh, like we're jumping around, but I love it. We're having a great conversation, I think, is uh, part of the subversiveness is, is also just like, oh, like we're building up this duel, this duel, duel. Nope, not happening. Okay, there's going to be a big battle, 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 battle between York and Bolingbroke. Nope. Uh, uh, there's going to be a great siege, right? No. no. And I love how uh, Gould leans into that because it's nowhere in the in the, the original text. Yeah. When uh, Richard is, uh, you know, he, he's up in, in Flynn Castle and he basically, uh, Northumberland asks him to come down to come talk to Henry. And he's like, all right, I'll come down. And, and Gould uh, directs it as all of Henry's men, like, cheer and charge into the castle as, or <laughs> as they're, they're about to take it and they rush in swords up and there's like all right everyone kneel for the king <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cool <laughs> yep and, brilliant and, direction brilliant it, direction brilliant direction but i just it is shakespeare trolling this this whole play yeah <laughs> and, and i, I love that i don't you know I'm, you can't talk about shakespeare in 10 but i would love to know <laughs> yeah why just what is that what are we supposed to take away from the the fake outs and i don't know is it you can get into some super conspiracy theory speculation that he was essentially trolling the censors because he knew that this one would be you know, we can get and we, we can get to that when we get to the big um the the scene of the play yeah the scene of the play but before we do that like there's two things we need let's get into a little bit for so i think we've touched on we, we both really are admired about wish would, would you would like to say is a big thing before we get to the scene of really of a great thing about what do you what it is you like about about wishaw's richard that um I think it's just his ability to play the entire range of, of Richard and, and to compare it to, to Jacoby, who is... And even uh, uh, Rylands, I saw a bootleg production of... It was a mm. terrible quality production of uh, The Globes, um, Richard the Second, where Rylands was Richard. Mm. Rylands is a... He was great at the melancholy Richard, so later part of the play Richard, but he didn't really sell the, the tyrant. Um Jacoby was is he kind of more petulant throughout. I thought he was a one note throughout the whole mm-hmm. thing. Wisha sells the full range, the kind of the the very beginning when he's cordial, he's very politic, and then his tyrannical side, both mm. with, and with the duel um, with Gaunt, and then his of course in Flynn Castle. And then just the absolute, he's essentially playing the fool in, in Act 4, Scene 1. Um, mm-hmm. And he does that. It's that scene that really sells it for me. Mm. That, that's the one scene. Um, and then they cut his monologue. Gould cuts the monologue at the end, which, I mean, it's my favorite monologue, but I completely understand why. Um, but, you know, he, he kind of, for what they give him to do, he, he also sells the de- dejected yeah. uh, part. So yeah, I think he just because he captures all elements of this complex character uh, mm-hmm. so well. I can't 
argue with that at all. That's perfect. Um, let's talk a, a, a little bit. We, we haven't mentioned it already, but Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart, of he's pretty much now, sadly, on the cusp of mostly supporting Shakespeare roles, except for Lear age. And so he got to come in to do one of Shakespeare's greatest speeches and just greatest sequences in this otherwise forgotten play of the scepter dial and the direction of that and the performance i think by stewart for scepter dial of just really capturing what what people often forget about it is that it is this tangent it's just like he's he's in this angry mood expecting to see give his like final stern talk to to his nephew to get him to snap out of it and in the middle of that he suddenly just talks about england and then just realizes oh england is so great i love england so much but then he remembers oh crap but it's being ruled by this terrible king yeah it's it's a great um it's it's an amazing scene and it is one of those completely tangential uh scenes that come up in the history plays um even though obviously it does have the connection to the plot but the yeah the speech has is purely for uh, lyricism mm-hmm. like so many of shakespeare's yeah. lyrical speeches <laughs> to be honest um so i had seen hollow crown in 2012 and then for the first time again three days ago mm-hmm. in my head until i saw it three days ago i had michael gambon as john of gaunt like i remember oh. being john of gaunt and i cannot for the life of me figure out why and then i was watching it again i was like wait that's not good that's oh oh it's picard okay <laughs> i completely <laughs> forgot patrick stewart was in this thing um, yeah that's just a weird i have no idea how i got there but yeah i mean it's it's patrick stewart he's he you know he can he he'll do justice to any piece of shakespeare um, he does the man it can the, read, the man can read the phone book as some yeah, would say exactly um, so yeah he's just so he, he he's great in that and he's perfect to be a gaunt and 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 what you're saying about range of just like he can go from that one moment of of gaunt being this nice kind of like oh england is so wonderful to to that angry cursing shakespearean venom of just like landlord not king yeah he oh yeah um he can definitely do range and it is it's a difficult scene Um, yeah it's he is he's in control of that entire scene and you have to i think it's hard to sell a death scene um he definitely does it well uh, he doesn't die on stage, uh, of course, but that I know I'm dying, but I am stronger than you. The taglines yeah. was like, "You're the one who's dying." And he's like, "No, I'm yeah. not." <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the it is one of the wittiest, and, and but also like on the gallows side, wittiest for Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that's the other thing about this play. It's it's a dark play i'm i'm trying to think of because there's no version of the clown um the closest you can get and i've seen it in other versions is it the gardener is um not even the gardener really it's it's usually the duke of york you duke of york is you 
can often be played for comedy. Eh, no. As just like this, <laughs> as just this doddering old man. I, I get the, yeah, I've seen him more, um, I don't know who plays him in this one, sorry, but I've seen other Dukes of York um, be more of that completely ineffective, really play up the any way the wind blows, that's where I'll go. Uh, this Duke of York was far more grounded, and I actually really like his performance. Yeah. David Sushet. Uh, David Sushet. He's a yeah, veteran Shakespeare actor. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't recognize him. Um, but yeah, no, I, I wouldn't consider him anything remotely close to the comedic. So just to just to give a con like to put it in a more popular context, Macbeth, one of the, the darkest plays, has oh, yeah. a scene in the middle, smack in the middle with the porter, and it's meant to be completely played up for laughs, even though it's <laughs> dark comedy, it's still comedy. This has the pretty much yeah uh, I, <laughs> no I do agree I, I do agree basically the the gardener could function as that but even <laughs> what the gardener does is like it's still pretty much on the on the dark side and they and they rightly cast it as um oh i'm i'm blanking on his name uh let me see if i can hold, oh, it's hold david it up bradley yeah david bradley argus filch yeah yeah uh, oh the Fun trivia of, of the Hollow Crown season one is that they made sure in every in every movie that they would have two actors from Harry Potter and one actor from Game of Thrones because <laughs> <laughs> there, there happens to be. So they got they doubled for this one of they got they got Argus Filch oh, and, oh, and they got um, uh, Clemence Posey, who was in um, Goblet of Fire okay. as um, the French. Uh, French Anything? student. Yeah, I'm forgetting right. the name Fleur, of her. Uh, Fleur de Clair. Yeah, Fleur de Clair. Yeah. Yeah. That's just that's just British because you can also say uh, I think everyone has a, a Doctor <laughs> Who. This one has three Doctor <laughs> Who former Doctor Who cast members. Uh, David Bradley, Morrissey, and I think there was another one as well. Uh, so the BBC, you know, uh, and the British oh, yeah. well, British well, actors once... stay close to the family. Absolutely. So. Uh... So, so, so before we get to the, I, I want to talk a little bit about Morrissey since you mentioned him. So, and he was a bit, I love this take on Northumberland. This, I think, is the way, and this, to be also honest, this was informed my own reading that we just did of Northumberland, of just, Northumberland can be this total generic lord in this play. I love that Morrissey portrays him as this kind of Buckingham character, this total scheming, the dark side, and like, where he absolutely, from the get-go, is like, okay, screw this, I am 100% for usurping and replacing this king with another, with Bolingbroke. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he can be played straight, though. I haven't seen it. He uh, he is a great Northumberland Morrissey. Um, but I can't remember who plays him in the 70s BBC, but he was good as well. Yeah. Uh, I think, no, I think Northumberland is a very, uh, comparing him to um, uh, Buckham is, is uh, it's a great analogy. He is, especially, he's um, he's Bolingbroke's mouthpiece in this. He is, you know, he's essentially dragging Henry to the throne. Yeah. <laughs> now you can argue, you know, is, is Henry kind of setting it up that way or is is northumberland really calling the shots 
Um, yeah. And and so yeah, I think this um, production is well. this production is 100%. And one of the things I love and I notice again and again is is when the scene where where Bolingbroke is about to siege the castle and he tells Northumberland to relay this to the king, and he says like, I just want my lands. And if he gives me my lands, I will gladly embrace him as my king. And like Northumberland Morrissey just gives him a look, like he's like, "What? Yeah, like, I cannot believe you are serious. Like, are you serious? No." And he's just actually annoyed by that. And then in the uh, in 4.1 in the transfer of power, when it's it's Northumberland who's basically claiming to be the voice of the people by trying to force Richard to read whatever is written on that paper the, yeah. the grievances of the people of the commons um but it's you get the sense that yeah this is just northumberland is he is trying to be buckingham he's trying to just be the or or even um uh warwick just just the kingmaker in this case yeah, that's that's absolutely. his role to play well and yeah. like and it makes 100 percent what happens and set up for Henry the Fourth, Part One, but just what happens to all these kingmakers? Yeah. Although I don't know, it's, to me, one, that's one of those weird things. And so there's a thing about Shakespeare's history plays that, in in retrospect, we have grouped them into these convenient tetralogies oh, yeah. with two outliers. Um, but there's there's a question of you know how closely related were they meant to be seen back in the day mm-hmm. uh, henry the fourth part one and two are kind of the, out of all of the histories i would argue are the closest as far as a sequel goes um obviously richard the second or henry the fourth part one follows right after richard the second but there's so many differences in the characters and northumberland i think is the biggest example except for maybe henry himself mm-hmm. um where he is he's not the same character i mean Hotspur takes over that that mm-hmm. role for sure, and Northumberland kind of just falls into the background, and then he gets sick and is just conveniently gone, and then makes mm-hmm. a comeback in part two. So I don't know. They do some strange. They uh, Shakespeare does some strange <laughs> things with that character, and it just might be emblematic of the fact that we're not meant to see them as much of sequels as we do. Yeah. Well, the Hollow Crown kind of helps explain it in in that it's been years and so Northumberland is kind of a, a shadow of himself. Yeah. That's that's one convenient way out. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of that whole Henry the fourth. And if you come back, we could talk about those ones, but it's all about being shadows of yourself. And it's all about the, the legacy you leave behind, especially part two. That's, that's true. Yeah. What the, the part two, if there is any point of part two, it's definitely, it's definitely okay. What do you leave behind? What's my legacy? Yeah. And it's about the sun. About right. being old. Can you be like Falstaff and just pretend you're not old? Or are you going to be like Henry the Fourth and just kind of accept it, but just also hope? Oh gosh, please, 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 son, do not be the screw up. Please do not be the screw up. Please do not be the screw up. And yeah, and what's interesting in that is. Um... You get a tiny glimpse of, of Northumberland and uh, Henry Percy, uh, aka Hotspur, in this, and yeah, they even though it's a tiny bit, and I mean you can't really make too many assumptions from their few lines together. You get the sense that their relationships not 
great. And then even carrying into Henry the Fourth Part One, there is it's this whole tetralogy, it's fathers and sons. Mm-hmm. There's there's no good I mean, the only good father son relationship in this whole thing is Gaunt and Bolenbrook. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then uh, uh, there's a lot of strain between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's not it's not good enough where Gaunt can can stop his son from doing the duel, so yeah, I mean, the, probably the worst is is, is York and Omero, where York is actually like, no, I don't want you to spare my son. I want him to die. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, Omero's the worst, though. <laughs> That's okay. stupid kid. <laughs> stupid kid. Uh, so um, maybe we, we're about to reach that scene. But OK, so let's talk a little bit, though, about Kinnear as Bolingbroke. And I mean, we've already said quite a bit. Maybe, but just I love, love, love this interpretation where it just and does somewhat skew close to what I think the actual history was like, but just like where it just kind of just Bolingbroke accidentally steals the throne. He's like, "What? I, I just came back from my lands. I, I, I don't like my lands being ransacked and stolen from me." And then in the middle of this, just like all the lords are just so angry with Richard that he just becomes the figurehead for a usurpation that he himself like did not expect at all. And so all the lines he says, and that's, again, part of the interpretation. You can do Bolingbrooks where he is an utter liar. He is nothing but this ambitious lord. Yeah. Where where he does not mean at all like, oh, I just want my lands back. And he kneels, but it's a mocking kneel to Richard. But no, this one is like, my king. But just yeah, Kinnear, being so, so recklessly impulsive is like, oh, why are you bowing to me? You've won. Like, uh, I didn't want to win. <laughs> Kinnear definitely plays it more. Um, he plays it more straight. And so if he were meant to see his Bullenberg as the conniving, he didn't sell he he either sells it too well or or not well enough oh, no. uh, because there's no way to really read that from his performance but it it makes some of the beats kind of interesting so you and and just like richard has his range throughout this play henry does to a more subtler degree uh, so you look at the different beats first it's bolenbroke the the duelist he's and as you mentioned before it's kind of the lancastrian propaganda we're meant to see him as the side of truth and he you know try he gets mm-hmm. the blessing of the king um after the banishment happens he basically says to mowbray look we're we're already banished nothing else <laughs> can happen. just just confess already come on yeah. <laughs> so there's this whole you're most you're supposed to see him as the the righteous one mm-hmm. and then there's when he is first you know lands back in england and gathering his forces to do whatever to get his lands back i guess um he's he's extremely quiet and this is where northumberland becomes more of the mouthpiece and then after he's king you get that one scene which so i think uh the cul-de-sac tangent of the you know york domestic struggle it only exists for henry to get to do something kingly and his one kingly act is pardoning O'Merl while mm. also sentencing the traitor just to show, oh, look how great he is as a king. Uh, Richard would have just killed O'Merl in this case if it wasn't. Yeah. Um, 
uh, Henry, Henry has to be a better king. But then there's that final scene, and I love, uh, we'll probably circle back to this, I love that final scene where they're just coming in with the heads. Yeah. And Bolenberg is just looking at, the, and it's just this complete stoic look at what I've done. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and so, yeah, I think that, again, I think he sells it so much more. On paper, Bolenberg is not a great character in this play. And and I love this play, but Bolenberg is not... If you read the play, you won't think that he is... You can, you can make some interpretations on what his motives are, but it's strictly as a Shakespearean character, you would never put him up there with, with any of the great characters. But yeah, it's the performance it sells it because it's mm-hmm. so much in the expression. Definitely, I've heard that complaint before and i i can the big insight that someone said about this is that we which makes it a feast for interpretation is we have no monologue or soliloquy from from bolingbroke himself yeah in in the process of this so we have no idea from his own thoughts so it's all just like you projecting onto him and in essence it's because richard is the main tragic character it's him projecting also onto Bolingbroke how much like he sees ambition and treachery yes and from a scholarly analytic perspective that's that's fantastic but if you just think about Uh, yes Shakespeare's characters again I don't think you'll ever get while yes this play is overlooked far too much even so um, because we don't have access to him and because it's on paper, you know, it's it's very hard to see him as anything but kind of an interesting puzzle or something to be analyzed and, and studied. Um, and it goes back to it saying that, like Julius Caesar, even though, for example, Brutus, we get so much more insight into him through his asides and then monologues, mm-hmm. he is also kind of one of those characters that you're just meant to, he's meant to represent something more than be a great character uh, and and that's Bolingbroke in this play um, but with performances like Kinnear's um, I think that it, it really elevates that character okay I'll defend Bolingbroke but uh, but you you defend defended it you 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 said your piece and uh, I don't disagree with much of what you said so I uh, and I won't lie, Kinnear's performance helped made me fall in love with this, with the character of Bolingbroke. But but okay, I think we've we've we've, we've covered our tracks. Let's get to the scene. Yeah. So just for so, I will state this on the record. I kind of made an offhand comment yesterday, but I will put this out on public record. I think this might be one of, if not my most favorite scene in all of Shakespeare. And I was actually looking it up just out of curiosity. I was looking up different like best Shakespeare scenes. And you get what you might think when you look up best Shakespeare scene, you know, Hamlet 3.1. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty good. Balcony scene, which I do love. That's up there for me as well. You'll never, I've never, I looked at seven, eight different lists and, no, <laughs> no, you oh, Richard the second. You got Richard the third nonsense. Um, but yeah, this is so good, and it is it is this... staged, it is directed, cinematographed <laughs> so well. Yes, in this, uh, in this production. So, oh. 
two fun facts or one so believe it or not alex this scene was very often cut in in especially in shakespeare's time and the reason why is not many people know this richard ii is actually the play that nearly got william shakespeare actually in trouble and actually almost dying because it's it's quite forgotten but as elizabeth was getting on in her years a lot of lords were getting more and more nervous of well, what do we do what do we do what do we do and some lords tried to plot a coup and they thought and they saw richard ii and loved it and thought this is the play this is our play this yeah, is a and- cry. It's the story of removing a tyrant. And so they commissioned Shakespeare's troupe to say, do a performance of Richard II. It was like, oh, what? We haven't done that one in a while. Okay. And then, so the, it was this kind of pep mo- play for them to watch right before they did the coup. Coup failed, of course. And yes, Shakespeare's company was brought in for questioning and uh, there's this um I, I i do know the the story and i don't think the coup is uh is that little known especially because there's an entire movie about it with um yeah Kate blanchett uh elizabeth uh, um yeah. but uh i i think there was this apocryphal probably not even true part where after that whole after the plot yeah. was discovered elizabeth stood up and said i am richard the second um <laughs> And, yeah. Oh, the version I heard was that she actually then demanded perform the play for me. Yeah. And then, and then that was her response at the end of his like, yeah, oh, exactly. yes, I am Richard II. <laughs> yeah. It really, I think that's one of those just stories that's meant to paint Elizabeth in this good. Like, oh, wasn't she so good natured that that Queen Elizabeth? <laughs> How can you hate her? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I do understand, you know, why this scene would be cut. But that being said. Because it's extremely dangerous, I understand, at the time of just saying, of just showing a king can give up their crown and and become nothing. That's that's the thing, though. That's the dangerous part. And it it goes back to this divine right of kings, which admittedly had softened by the Renaissance by Elizabeth's time, but was still ingrained into the monarchy. Yeah, it's even today. Um, (laughs) But it's it's so the point of the scene is it's it's dangerous it's scandalous because it presents the idea that a king can abdicate and it it circles back to that question does henry take the crown or does richard give it to him that's why (laughs) the centerpiece of this entire play and the centerpiece of this best scene of shakespeare is with the two of them with their hands on the crown and the not so great metaphor, but a great speech. Uh, Richard's speech of this crown is a well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just as a tangent, um, Gould decides, all right, let's let's have the camera positioned in the crown, pointing up. And yeah. Uh, and so he says, this crown is a, a well with two buckets uh, uh, filling it, and my bucket full of tears is weighing it down while yours empty soars in the air. Sorry for that me. is a good image, though. I know it's not the best metaphor, but it's, it's a great, great metaphor, image. It's, it's a for, for just like the for 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 their for their situation and what they are at. And so Wishaw, this is this is both like magnificently chewing the scenery and yet 
playing it all perfectly of that even though and this is all why i love this play so much and why i'm so angry that people don't love this play or, or know this play as much is you're thinking as up until this scene really that like yeah richard you got this coming you totally got this coming you're a jerk you're not good at this job Bolingbroke totally has this job, but then like Carlisle gives that portentous warning of like, uh, if you establish that being king is garbage, that there's that there is no divine right of kings, then there's going to be tons of wars and that, and of course, everyone brushes it off and just says shut up and go away. We're not, not going to have go any. Away. It's not. Yeah, that's nice. All right, you're under arrest. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, I, I know what you're getting. And so, yeah, you have that that scene and, and even, you know, so Northumberland arrests him. And I think at that point, you're still meant to see, you know, Bullenberg as the hero and his camp is the right. And because I guess it's my theory that Shakespeare just absolutely hates every bishop in every play. <laughs> you're not you're not supposed to sympathize with Carlisle. But then Richard comes in. And just that that first part of that speech of his is, oh, it's the line that really that gets me every time. It's I love this line. It's you know he's God save the king. Will no one say amen? And he just looks around and you have it's yeah. close ups of all the other people's faces and they're just looking so uncomfortable. And then he he continues on. Yeah. And he become he's so pitiful yes but i think that just it's that idea of when you strip the king away from him what is he yes and nothing Um, and uh, that's my own interpretation of just and wishaw sells it perfectly of and that that shot that ghoul does of just of that once he has removed himself from the crown and as he says and and he does sincerely mean that of undo myself i am undoing myself all I know is being king. And like, now what am I? What am I? And then he's just floating and the crown floats. Cause he just, he isn't, he's in his mind surrendered up his soul. And then there's, there's just in that exact moment, I can't remember which line exactly, but he's, yeah, it's when he's talking to God, essentially. Um, he lie, he lies back and I think it's the exact same shot that you see him later when he's in the coffin. It's just that exact same framing. He's just lying on the ground. The camera's pointed down. Yeah. And and he's as he's talking to God. And and yeah, it's just it's beautifully framed as he is just giving up every part of himself. <laughs> and then he does this thing where like, I would love to know if this was Ghoul's direction or, or Wishaw just really embracing the character when Northumberland asks him essentially to give up the crown, he, he holds up the crown and like, cousin! Yes! <laughs> yes! Yes! Haunting. And then yeah. they have this quick, you know, Bullenberg's like, I don't know, okay. Tries to take it, Richard grabs it back, and then you have the, the well bit. And yeah, it is, that's why I, I'm saying, you know, when you strip everything away from him, he just becomes the fool, essentially. It's, you know, it's, Shakespeare's much more explicit with it in King Lear, but it's the same kind of thing. You know, the connection between the king and the fool is two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And he is, while pitiful, he's also playing with um, with Bolenbrook in this moment. And it is so wonderful. 
because he's playing up the farce of just like and of like oh oh i'm still king right hey i'm still legally king right yeah yeah but then, and like, then at the end he has you know he asks for a favor and and Voldemort's like anything fair cuz like fair cuz so oh, i'm better than a king because when i was a king everyone was just flatterers and now i'm being flattered too you know? a king is flattering me yeah, yeah exactly uh and part, well, of the, also, part of when he gives away the crown also just like god save king harry un king richard says <laughs> yeah. i'm just like that's just such wonderful mockery but yeah. also truth is like was like well all right it's yours now and then the final beat of that scene is just resignation. It's, uh, you know, I just ask one favor of you, yeah. you know, let me go. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, well, where do you yeah. want to go? Wherever you please. All right, take him to the tower. Oh, good. Convey. <laughs> Convey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so much. So what I was going to say, I feel this is one of those scenes that should be a requirement for all acting classes. Yes, absolutely. Not just for Richard. I do also mean for Bolingbroke of just that, of how you do that, that nonverbal performance of what you said, which Kinnear does so wonderful of just like that, of that nervousness of that annoyance and that un discomfort and like, and what words he does says of just like, I'm just both pitied, but also annoyed and just like, I thought you'd been willing to resign. Yeah. And like trying to be a little bit consoling and finally, and whispering like, are you willing to resign the crown? Yeah. Cause he, he knows, you know, this is, this is just, it's unprecedented. Like he's surrounded by all these lords. Like, like this has to go off perfectly where you yeah. are not having any sham usurpation like he's basically like i'm not usurping the crown you are giving it to me yeah um and there's that you know there's a wonderful any shakespeare i mean in a reverse time sense i was gonna say he circles back to it but it's in the past is that wonderful moment in the first scene of uh henry the sixth part three where york and and henry the the sixth are arguing back and forth is yes our grandfather usurped the crown he gave up the crown yeah. That's this moment. So that's the question. Did Henry usurp it or did he give it up? And it's yeah. the eternal question. And the scene explicitly does not answer it. Yeah. Well, but, yeah. And it also gets into just the idea of. And so what you were getting earlier, and one of the things I love about this play, get kind of slowly get to reaching our end, is that. I'm not sure there is a point in this play because it's it, it, Shakespeare obviously had to toe the Tudor propaganda line when it came to came to the York tetralogy. Yeah, this uh, one he wasn't as burdened. And so he is incredibly neutral and very ambiguous when it comes to Lanca- Lancastrian usurpation because he because he. That that speech by Carlyle is basically Tudor propaganda line of saying that the Wars of the Roses begins because of the usurpation by Henry the Fourth. Yeah. And so they're saying that that was a wrong thing to do. But at the same time, it's just like 
Shakespeare like knows his history and says like, no, but it was Richard. He was he was a bad king. He was a tyrant. But then, and I I feel that there's things like, and this also goes into Julius Caesar. I've said this before, is that Shakespeare. Okay, one well, of the only things we can be pretty positive of is he is not a populist. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but other than that, is that he's he's always, I think, sympathetic to the idea of the revolution, of the idea that, no, I don't like tyrants. No, no. Tyrants are bad. Yes. But, but, removing a tyrant can create more problems th- than the tyrant being around. Shakespeare's uh, sympathetic to revolution the same way centrist democrats are <laughs> we want change except no poor people and no extremists and it has to be you know it's it's subtle change where you know nothing really happens but it, it looks good that was that was shakespeare's revolution and you look at you know richard uh henry the the sixth part uh part two it's like here's the bad revolution jack cade Here's the good revolution, uh, York. York. And it's yeah. just like, yeah, the if if you're gonna lead a revolution, it has to be the upright nobles the, mm-hmm. who who yeah. do it, not the filthy commons. Yeah. Right. So, so I mean, and that's so I don't know because he he seems to be, and definitely I think Gould goes with that idea of of that. On the one hand, yes, we should have the modern world of, that Bolingbroke represents, but at the same time. One establishing that that modern world creates opens up this whole humongous can of worms that that Henry the Fourth is going to spend the next all of his reign just fighting wars to yeah. say that he should be king, and he dies giving the advice, "Hey, Hal, I think the cool. only way we, we we can get get away with this is if you just war with someone else so they forget that you're a usurper." Yeah. But just to uh, to circle back to what is the point of this play, I think that one thing I love about um, Richard II, and this is the the Romeo and Juliet connection, is that it's it's symmetrical in almost the same way that Romeo and Juliet is is this play of perfect symmetry, comedy, tragedy, you know, whatever. Um, the Crown uh, Well speech being the centerpiece of this play really perfectly demonstrates that it's. It's the rise, it's the fall and rise of kings. One king falls, mm-hmm. the other king rises, and the entire play presents the symmetry. Um, it starts off in a very microcosmic way as the opposite. You know, Richard's on top, Henry's banished. But immediately after that, mm-hmm. every scene sees the decline of Richard and the rise of Henry. And it is this perfect two buckets in a well lifting, and they come to the meeting place and then they continue on in their opposite directions. Mm. Uh, so yeah this this play is just it's absolute symmetry and i don't think it's trying to make a political statement on either side but really show the mm-hmm. rise and fall of kings and this is how power works in order for one to rise someone must fall yes absolutely so why does nobody like this play <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, kind of before we get to that, let, let's talk about the one big controversial, although, although we we both agree, I think it's a better call choice that this film goes with, that subsequent productions have also gone with, 
of having a Merle be the one that kills Richard. I really do. I haven't seen any other production that does it. Um, the the David Tennant David one. Tennant. Did it. Okay, yeah. cool. I'll have to look into that. Uh, yeah, for this one, if you just look at, again, the Holocron as a piece of media meant for a broader audience, most who probably know Henry V, know something about Falstaff, who have no idea what Richard II is, it makes perfect sense. One, it gives Omerl something to do because you have completely cut out the first half of his plot, rightfully so, because mm-hmm. of the Gloucester plot. Mm-hmm. Like the, you know, that amazing scene, the <laughs> forcing one, begins... Yeah, I wish they had separated into two scenes because then I have to acknowledge that's my favorite scene. But the beginning is <laughs> um, it, it begins with O'Merl being challenged by everyone about basically yeah. killing his uncle, which he probably did. Um, and and so yeah, they cut that out rightfully so. And and so they essentially rewrote his arc as O'Merl is someone so loyal to Richard joins a plot to kill Henry after the transfer of power is discovered is pardoned and then gould has the that moment where you know omura leaves bolenbrooks leaves the the throne room he goes and he sits on his bench and it's just this like sad mopey you know like a teenager sitting outside the principal's (laughs) office type of scene like what do i do now and then the the beat that i i imagine gould was going for is that this is just the end of his arc is Okay, I'm going to redeem myself with this king who, you know, who saved my life by ridding him of of his enemy, um, and you know, and this is how I'm going to make good in this world. I'm going to redeem my family name and and advance my career with this new king, and yeah. that blows up in his face. <laughs> and yes, and I love that one. It makes the the the, the pardoning of a Merle scene plot relevant to the story. Yes, yeah, and of just that. It's often cut, and I understand why it's cut, because it's just kind of the only other purpose that scene can provide is just Henry is a better king. Exactly, and I think that is that is the reason for it, to be honest. It's the only – it's so we can see Henry being a good king. Yeah. Uh, and to wrap up the – basically to wrap up the Richard plot, because I'm sure there was – I'm sure that bit's historically accurate, that there was a, yeah. pl- a counter plot against Henry. There was, yes. That is many, one of them. <laughs> one of many. That was the first uh, yeah. one. Yeah. But That's... it is great. It gives, yeah, it makes that scene make sense and it, it leads well into the the death scene and just. And I also want to pause and just praise, uh, I've done it before, but Lindsay Duncan, just her only real scene, she really sells the drama of that scene of just begging, begging, please, 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 please. Please do not kill my son. Please do not kill my son. Please do not kill my son. Yeah. On her knees. And such it being great of just York of just like, against their please, I bend my knees. <laughs> and again, you just have Kinnear's amazing reactions like, what the frig is this? <laughs> what if, yeah. This is what being king is about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so yeah. And, and, the, and the scene, this has gone from, from a, into the scene of the beggar and the king. Huh? Yeah. There's there's the moment of comedy in the play is that scene. I guess Duchess of York is supposed to be the comic uh, character. Yeah. But I mean, it's not. I'm just saying that's. But yes, that scene, it does provide a bit of levity after yeah else, and then the final scene to come. Well, because then the, you get the gut punch, and the holy image that Gould goes with for for richard i've always 
I'm not sure still what to make of it, but I think what it he he represents it, it is the death of the anointed king. Yeah, it's the death of that idea of the the king as a holy man, and it's also the death of okay, that's the end of England being peaceful. We are about to have a century of civil war. Good luck, guys. Yeah, that's true. Because I mean that is basically what if you look at it as an eight part cycle, which the Hollow Crown kind of does make it into is this is all about the story of the wars of the roses and thank goodness henry tudor came in and started the tudor dynasty also kind of because <laughs> yes shakespeare knows whose butts to kiss yeah but there was i think it was emma smith i can't remember um who I, i've absorbed way too much information about these <laughs> plays uh i'm gonna say it was her and then apologize if i'm wrong uh she had this point about yeah and, and this goes back to what you're saying there was a lot of interest in in richard ii as elizabeth was getting to the end of her reign um but there was also just a lot of interest in this this history mm-hmm. which these eight plays are all about succession who is the proper leader how do you properly uh how does succession properly work how should it work and, you know, you're getting to this really tumultuous time in English history where there was no heir. Elizabeth was getting old. She was going to die. And nobody really knew what would happen after that. And then James comes to the throne. Everything's pretty cool. And there are no more history plays except for <laughs> Henry VIII, which, you know, is what it is. Um, it's like that was... That was I mean, the, I mean yeah, technically um, Macbeth, but, yeah. I mean, a... sorry, no more modern English history. Plays. Yeah. <laughs> not even Shakespeare that was just the end of the interest in the history playing in, in general was that transfer mm. that peaceful transfer of power this was like oh this isn't dramatic at all, all right, <laughs> move on to tragedy yeah. <laughs> or fantasy fantasy yeah. became a new thing mm. um, but yeah this play definitely shows the well as well I mean I'm, I'm, I'm sure that was like relieving to them I was like oh there wasn't a civil war there wasn't another war of the roses yeah. oh no I'm sure oh. it was just from a okay. dramatic perspective. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. It's, it's the reason why all the, the news media waited four days instead of two to declare the U.S. election last week. <laughs> it, it's it's great, but, you know, not as good for ratings. Um, yeah. Nobody likes peacetime in rate, <laughs> media ratings. Uh, well, no one but, writing uh, the stories and no one telling the news. So, uh, yeah, let's get into that the final debate question. <laughs> Why is this play not not popular? My theory, yeah, go ahead. My theory, at least, is is what we were saying lovingly. I think the subversiveness of this play is also what what makes it kind of hard for a lot of people to get into. Is like, what there isn't uh, of say what you will about the Henry the Sixth plays but they deliver on what you expect of like whoop battles 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 blood to the death vengeance yeah it's just like no no battles to the death no no duels like even like mowbray is just like oh yeah mowbray died off screen yeah. what what yeah i forgot about that <laughs> he's just like yeah mowbray died oh, oh. And I love how it comes after Henry's like, I'm going to pardon Mubri and bring him home. Uh, he's dead. Ah, oh, well, screw that then. <laughs> oh, awkward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that certainly might I, be. I mean, like, even, even, Omer, even the Omerl scene, it's just like, it's like, ooh, uh-oh. This guy's about to die. Like, no. No. 
He's gonna live. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. That I mean, it does. You made the last Jedi comparison earlier. It does have that. You know, that is a very divisive technique. I think it might also. I mean, there are other factors as well. It is. If you look at the histories as a whole, it's the least plot his the least plotty of the plays. Yeah. Um, that should be know, a good selling point, though. I think it, it should be, but I don't know. I think that. I'm just trying to think, you know, what is what makes Henry the Fourth Part One and Henry the Fifth so much more well renowned than this? And Henry the Fourth Part One, I think, has a good variety. Henry the Fourth is it's such a modern play, uh, that one, which is why I think that if you look at all the history thing, that's the most fondly looked upon from a populist standpoint. Um, I think just be, because it is the most modern, it has you know it's a father and son dynamic. It's you know it, it has the whole Falstaff Hal relationship. It fluctuates. It has a battle. It's got everything that play. Um, I, 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 think, I don't mean to talk down on it. I love it. No, no, I think for me personally, well, populist play is not is a compliment. Yeah, is that <laughs> is that uh, we're not Oscar snobs. <laughs> the I think f- part of Henry the Fourth Part One. And come back on to talk about Henry the Fourth Part One, whichever one you want to talk about. But the for me, what I, I truly admire, I think scholars and audiences all admire about Henry the Fourth Part One is it is the ultimate marriage of what Shakespeare can bring, of just high drama and broad comedy. It's all in one play. That's true. It has... It's like it's some of the funniest stuff that Shakespeare ever wrote, and it's also some of the most dramatic and gripping stuff. Shakespeare did. That is true. And, and yeah. both of them are actually pretty neatly wound together, unlike other plays where it's just like, ah, this kind of doesn't belong in the same thing. Like this actually, no, this makes sense of like, of like you can have all the broad comedy stuff and you can have all the drama stuff. And it's all linked to, by how. Uh, yeah, he is the perfect vehicle for that play. Um, he, which is why it kind of upsets me that Holocron decided to cast uh, Hiddleston in, in that one. Ooh, works, but, but, he's great and he's or he's not he's fine he's good in, in henry v but i so just again for public record i've told you this before my belief is that the three hals and i mean you can make an argument for henry fourth part one and two being the same so two but i'll still divide into three they're very different characters i think that the hal of henry the fourth part one is an extremely different character than henry v and it makes sense he's you know in in you know, in universe, he's learning, he's growing. Mm-hmm. But I also think this goes back to they're not meant to be as sequel as we see them today. And I, I don't think they're written as the same character grown up a bit. I think they're written as two completely different characters. Mm. Um, well, but, that's that's kind of another discussion. Yeah, no, I know. But... Uh, just to, to circle back to Richard, though. Um, so, yeah, I think that Henry the Fourth Part One is so much more populous. Henry V has, I mean, it's it's more cinematic. It has is a mixture of you know momentous speeches and battles. Um, uh, whereas, that is a, I'll say it this way: of that Henry V is the blockbuster. Yeah, it is total the summer blockbuster. Yeah. play. It's big, fun battles, and I'd actually mean that fun. Uh, I, although yes, if you watch the Hollow Crown and if and if you watch Brana's movie, but just 
really exciting characters and just great rousing speeches and big characters and big battles. It's all really thrilling stuff. Yeah, and then, so you compare that to the the quiet poetry of of Richard II, which doesn't have those big moments, and it's the strongest part part of that play is its language, as said yes. from the start. And and so yeah, I think that that makes it a harder sell for the the masses. Um, and and uh, I don't mean this in a mean way, but maybe this is actually me thinking about this now, just off the top of my head, but. I think actually also what we were t- touching on of the complexity of the story of that what message is it saying is that there isn't one really or if there is one it's extremely debatable as we've explored the very fact that there is no clear cut or it's yes you can Richard is the main character but is he a hero is he a tragic hero is he a tragic villain uh, and how should we feel when Bolingbroke triumphs in the end and and Richard dies? How yeah. should we feel? It's it's Shakespeare doesn't kind of hammer away and just kind of make it clear, like you know what you're supposed to feel like at the end of Henry V of like woo England <laughs> and yeah we didn't really keep that but England <laughs> that's that's Six's problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's true. It's uh, it is so much more. It's a subtler play, uh, Richard II, in in every way, um, and I think that's that's what makes it fantastic. And I don't know, maybe we're, we're due for uh, a Richard II resurgence. At the start of the the Trump presidency, we saw the <laughs> mini, uh, mini resurgence of uh, Henry VI Part Two and sort of three, um, just because of you know mainly because of Greenblatt's tyrant, um, and. <laughs> So maybe I don't know. Now we're we're entering a new era, and you know, what is what is leadership? Uh, let's yeah. let's bring back Richard II. <laughs> I totally. I think it's an eternal play, and any time is is a wonderful time to wonder and muse about leadership. Yeah, that's and, that's fair. And, and always on what exactly is the right call, but yeah, no, no, no. I, I I'm with you. I want to research into Richard II. I want tons of of more options of Richard II, but if not, thanks to posterity of and why we do this podcast, we have the Hollow Crown always with us. That's true. Although apparently there was a 2019 version of Richard II with um, I'm blanking his name, but the one who plays Falstaff in Hollow Crown. Oh, yeah, Beale? Simon Russell Beale. Beale. Yeah, he, he yeah. Did Beale. He was... did a. I think he just. I think that was just a play. Okay, I just I was looking at his IMDb and I cannot picture him playing Richard II. Like I was looking up his IMDb and I recognize him from a few things and yeah. all of them make sense and he was good Falstaff. It's like I do not see that as Richard II, <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially 2019 when he's however yeah. old he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, That'd be probably a different one, but yeah. uh, hey, that's part of um interpretation. Uh, yes. Yeah. Any any Richard II in in world is a good one. <laughs> Not the person, but the play. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for coming on, Alex. Yeah. Anything thanks for like having me. Oh, uh, anything to plug? Um, yeah. If you would like to see, I alluded to at the very beginning of this podcast that I have written a series of essays. Uh, I've deleted my Richard II one because I have to redo it. It's no longer topical. 
Um, <laughs> but if you head to my website at A-L-E-X-B-E-N-A-R-Z-I.com, you can read some, I'll call them good, uh, commentaries slash essays on some of the more popular plays, uh, Romeo and Juliet, Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Ado About Nothing, King Lear, Othello, and some of the lesser knowns, uh, Henry the Sixth, Part One, Part Two, uh, Winter's Tale. Yeah, so check that out. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you. See you. Have a good one. Bye.